in the book of Revelation tonight, chapter 7. You guys are so subdued on Sunday night. Trips me out. We're going we're gonna to hit, maybe it's because we're just talking about the judgment of God or something like that, but it is sobering, isn't it? Okay, yeah, I'll tell you what I want tonight. I want some engagement, all right? Yeah, all right. You, 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 you may engage. So, hey, sometimes the truth is this. You go to church and it's like, well, I don't know what I can do and what I can't do. Don't pull, your, don't pull the flag and the tambourine out right now, okay? Don't do that. But definitely when God is speaking to your heart, you can, uh, you can give the Lord praise. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 7 tonight. We have 17 verses to go through this evening, and um, they're pretty amazing. So let's pray, and we'll jump right into this. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you, God, that we have the Word of God, that we've been blessed to live in a time where the, the Scripture has been canonized. Father, we have, we have the, the full Word of God in our hands tonight, from Genesis to Revelation. I thank you, God, that you've privileged us to live in a, a time such as this, God, where we have such abundant revelation, even when we're talking about future events, as you've disclosed these apocalyptic events through John and through Daniel and through the minor prophets and so often in the major prophets, of course, through your son. Thank you, Father. We don't ever want to have a dim view of your re revelation. God, we don't ever want to take it for granted. We pray that you would stir within our hearts uh, just a continued hunger and thirsting for you. And we pray tonight that you'd feed us. God, you're, you said it in Deuteronomy, and your son reset it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we, as your children tonight, as, as hungry little sheep, we come to you, and we pray that you satisfy our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just give you a quick review so that when we jump into chapter 7, uh, you're, not, you're not taken aback. I want to make sure you have the context here. So remember, uh, we've, we've journeyed through a lot already. We have that beautiful revelation of Jesus that was given to John in chapter 1 on the island of Patmos, of course, exiled for his faith in Jesus Christ, a martyr. Uh, ultimately, he died by natural causes, but, but, but he was, in a sense, suffering persecution. He for sure was suffering persecution, being exiled to the island of Patmos. He was a thorn in the side of the Roman government. I mean, everything that they tried to do uh, was unsuccessful uh, just to get rid of the Apostle John. And so they thought, well, you know what, we'll stick him on this island. And they did that. And it seems like things got even worse for them because while he was on the island, he had this beautiful revelation in the, in the, the midst of what was for sure physical suffering and insulation from the people of God. God met him there. Let me just remind you that you're never alone. You're never alone. You're never alone. You might feel like you're on an island. The truth is you actually may be on an island by yourself, separated and marginalized from the people that you love. But even there, the presence of God is with you. And he manifested that. He, God manifested that in John's life. I mean, you just think about the divine download that John received. And he heard the voice behind him as of a, a trumpet, and he turned around, and he saw this beautiful revelation of Jesus. And, and then he was, of course, given the, the letters to the seven churches. Uh, he was given this beautiful vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, taken up into heaven. The door of heaven was wide open for John. The door of heaven is wide open for you tonight, too. All you do is have to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ so you can step through that door into the everlasting presence of God. And when he saw this, when he was taken up, when he had this vision, of course, he saw the throne of God, he saw the Father sitting on the throne, he saw the hand of God, the right hand, and in the right hand there was a scroll, which was most likely the title deed to planet Earth. Uh, it was the authority over Earth that had been delegated to Adam, um, but that Adam had given over to the adversary. And this scroll had seven seals on it. There was no one in heaven that was worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father. And there was this uh, deep emotional convulsion within John's heart as he was looking all throughout heaven to discover the one who was 
Abel who had the authority to take the scroll and to overturn the curse, as it were. And he's overcome with this uh, emotion. The Bible says that he was weeping, the strongest word for weep in the original language. And then he's given that pacifying word not to weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, um, he, is, he is able. Not only does he have the, uh, the power, but he also has the authority to take the scroll from the hand of the Father and to unloose the seals. And so, you know, we, we see this um, through John's eyes. We see this beautiful vision. And then, of course, the response in heaven, all of the elders and the four living creatures uh, and all of the angels giving praise and honor to glory to God, all blessing, honor, and power belong to him. And remember, we, we, looked, we looked at those various songs of heaven and how they all had the central theme of expressing the worth or the worthiness of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we don't have to wait to heaven. We don't have to wait to get to heaven to express our worship in that manner. We can do that right now. In fact, we just did it. We were led in beautiful worship, and we have the opportunity to express from our hearts how worthy the Lamb is. And so he is seeing this marvelous scene, uh, and then in Revelation chapter 6, we're introduced to six of the seven seals, and we're walked through each of these different seals, um, very intense, as it were, these different expressions of the wrath of God were introduced to the Antichrist right there beginning in uh, chapter 1 of, or chapter 6, verse 1, revelation of the Antichrist, uh, war, famine, death, these are the four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse. By the time the four, first four seals are opened, one quarter of the earth's population is destroyed. And the Lamb continues to open seals. Seal 5 was the martyrdom of God's people, the tribulation saints. And then seal 6 was great cataclysms. Uh, not just cataclysms in the atmosphere with uh, the celestial stars, but then also on earth to the extent where everybody on earth, including kings and those in positions of power and authority, were looking for a hole to hide in because of the wrath of the Lamb. In the midst of all of this, as we begin chapter 7, you know, you would think chronologically we would jump right into the seventh seal, but we have a, an interlude in chapter 7. It's kind of a parenthetical uh, it's a short break, and it gives us this beautiful picture of the work of God's Spirit during the tribulation period. And in fact, um, I'll, I get this question from time to time, and with respect to the tribulation uh, period, this is really one of the most often asked questions. Are people going to be saved during the tribulation? And the answer is an emphatic yes. In fact, that's what chapter 7 is all about. It gives us a snapshot. It gives us a picture. Chronologically, it doesn't just fit in between seal number 6 and seal number 7. It is an overall view of the work of God's Holy Spirit in saving not only Jewish people, but Gentile people alike. And this is one thing that I appreciate so much about God, even in the midst of the great tribulation, even in the midst of the expression of his righteous wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, he is still seeking to win hearts to salvation. Isn't he good? Like in the, in the midst, let me just personalize that, in the midst of your stuff, I don't need to define your stuff, you can define it yourself, don't raise your hand tonight, I don't want to know what your stuff is. But in the midst of your stuff, isn't he still merciful? Doesn't he still express his grace and his kindness? And, you know, in those moments where you know you deserve it the least, what does he do? It is the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Don't misunderstand me tonight. You know, we don't play games with God because we fear the Lord. And we know that whom the Lord loves, he also chastens I mean, there is a, a line that we can cross where God will say to us, hey, enough is enough. I'm going to reel you in now. But even in that, that's an, an expression of the love of the Lord. And so, you know, while the expression of his wrath and these sealed judgments is sobering, we have a beautiful picture tonight of his saving work. And so let's check this out together. The Bible says in chapter 7, verse 1, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. 
that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So the, the next thing that, that John sees, like I said, this is parenthetical. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a picture of um, the overall work of God's spirit among the lost during the great tribulation period. He sees four angels standing on the four corners. This is just an idiomatic way of saying across the whole globe. There are some people who are like, well, see, you know, the, Bible's, the Bible believes in a flat earth. Well, no, that, the Bible does not believe in a flat earth. When it says four corners, this is just an, an idiomatic way of saying across the whole globe. And in fact, our military uses the same terminology today. Sometimes strategically, when we're talking about a global effort, we will identify four corners of the earth. And so does that mean that our military has lost its mind? Well, sometimes yes. But in that case, absolutely not. So, like I said, it's just a, it's just a, a way of expressing across the whole globe. There's this, uh, there's, there's this image, there's just this reality that these mighty, these strong angels are going to hold back the wind. Now, what does that mean? Um, it's possible that means that the angels are going to hold back the judgment of God so that, that this particular work of God can be accomplished. So maybe the wind is symbolically representing God's judgment. Um, and there seems to be later on, as, as we read, some, you know, some evidence that would lean into that interpretation. Uh, it's possible also that we're talking about the actual wind. We're talking about the wind not blowing. So holding the wind back. You know, and you can imagine all the different things that would come as a result of that. There would be this eerie, deathly silence that would be blanketing the globe. Um, there would be no rain because wind is necessary for the hydrological cycle of precipitation to, to operate. You know, God is such an amazing designer, how he has designed, you know, so many different elements of creation. One of those amazing elements is the hydrological cycle. So you have, you know, in, in brief, you have the evaporation of seawater that accumulates into clouds, those clouds move over the land, and as it moves over the land, whether it's flat land or a mountainous area, uh, precipitation begins to fall. Precipitation falls, that's fresh water, which makes it way, its way back into the oceans, where it's evaporated again, accumulated into clouds, carried over the land, precipitation falls, and it's, it's just this amazing thing that God does. It's possible that what we're looking at here is a withholding of the wind, a stopping of the hydrological cycle, which may be tied to some of these sealed judgments like famine. So you can imagine if there's no precipitation across the whole face of the planet Earth, obviously vegetation is going to die. Um, it's interesting as well that this might be tied into the manifestation of the two witnesses. We're going to see later on Right in the middle of the Great Tribulation period, there will be two witnesses that are raised up, and they will have Elijah-like power. One, by the way, will be Elijah, but, but there will be a manifestation of miracles that were similar to Elijah's time, like they will be able to stop uh, rain from falling from the heavens. It's possible that what the angels are doing here is tied to that particular moment as well. We're not necessarily sure. Verse 2 says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So um, it's part, that, that, this is why some people say, well, when we're talking about wind and the work of these angels, Possibly we're talking about judgment. And it might not just be an either-or situation. It might be a both-and there as well. But this particular angel ascends from the east, which is an interesting description of this angel. Can I tell you what I think it means? I have no idea. I have absolutely no clue what that means. But I think it's going to be amazing when that uh, revelation is right before our very eyes. As we're watching from heaven, thank God for that. This particular angel is on a mission. Uh, this angel has a seal to seal those who are going to be worshipers of the living God. So it is God's seal that will be placed upon these particular believers during this time. Uh, the word seal historically was, was, um, 
was used when you would take wax, like say for instance, you had a document, a legal document that you were gonna send to somebody, you wanted to make sure that document was not tampered with, and so you would take some, you would roll the scroll up, you would find where the seam was at, you would melt some wax, you would pour it on the seam, you would take your signet, which was either on your ring or on your staff, you would press it down into that wax, which would be cooling, and that would be the seal. That, that would ensure that that scroll was not going to be open, that it would get to its intended destination. And this was common practice, particularly for kings and people in places of authority. If your seal, if you were a king, uh, you had a particular mark that everybody knew. And so when you put your mark, when you put your seal on that document, everybody knew, man, if I, if I crack the seal, if I open that document, I'm going to suffer the wrath of the king. That's the last thing I want. And so because it bore the authority, it bore the power, it bore the potential judgment, it secured that document in getting to where it was supposed to go. What the Bible says here is that there are going to be souls that are sealed by God. You know, we talk about the mark of the beast. This is the opposite. The mark of the beast is the opposite. Is the, it's the antithesis of God's seal. Everyone's concerned about the mark of the beast today. Uh, for sure, everything, we'll talk about this later on when we get to Revelation chapter 13, but all of technology ultimately is feeding into this uh, particular uh, mark that is going to be taken by people who will be surrendered, willfully surrendered to the Antichrist. Like I said, this is the antithesis of it. God knows how to seal his people. I want to say that to you tonight. God knows how to seal his people it is a mark of ownership. It's a mark of protection. It's God's declaration that he is preserving those who belong to him. And you know, God not only will do that to these particular tribulation saints, but do you know that God has done that in your life now? Do you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the seal of God upon your life? Do you know what the seal of God on your life is? It's the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, exactly right. He has given to us the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the spirit of promise, the Bible says. The spirit is the earnest. He is the down payment. He is the guarantee that God is going to complete the spiritual journey that we are on and faithfully bring us home to himself. I love the declarations of uh, confidence in this from the scriptures. You know, when you read the Bible, the, the authors to these books were not, were not uh, unconvinced it wasn't as if they were in this constant sp space of, well, I don't know, maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't get there, it's a possibility, it depends on how good we are. That is never an argument from an author of any book in the scripture. There is absolute, total confidence that he will complete the good work that he began in us until the day of Christ Jesus. The spirit of God dwelling in your life is evidence of that. To the extent where Jude said this, he said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Tonight you, you might be unsure. You might be thinking, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't. I say to you, have you put your trust and faith in Jesus? Have you been born again? Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in your life? If the answer to those questions is yes, you will be with God in heaven. Paul said this, these are two different verses that I've just put together from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 2. God knows those who belong to him. God knows those who belong to him. And, different verse, he is able to keep that which we have committed to him until that day. I love the preserving power of God's Holy Spirit upon our lives. I want you to note, amen. Okay, that's a moment where you give affirmation tonight because you are fully engaged in the Word of God. Go ahead, spontaneous, give Him praise. That's better. I want you to notice in verse 3 as well that they're called the servants of God, right? This particular seal that they have is on their forehead. Not necessarily sure if that's visible, if it's just visible in the spiritual realm, but they are servants. They're servants of God. They love to serve the Lord. And who are these individuals? Well, verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, this is pretty clear, were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. 
Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now look, there are some today who believe that this is just symbolic, that we're not really talking about actual Israelites, actual Jews, uh, because there is this idea that the church has replaced Israel and the national promises of Israel ended with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, of course, I've explained to you multiple times that that is not our view, that we do believe God is going to fulfill and complete his covenant promises with the nation of Israel. That in fact, a seven-year period of time, while there are many things, because God can multitask, did you know that? Okay, you may not be able to multitask, let me tell you, God can. That's one of the benefits of being omniscient and, and omnipotent. But remember, one of the things that God is doing during this great tribulation period is he is awakening a nation. He's awakening a nation. He's awakening the children of Israel, who, of course, at this point have made a covenant with the Antichrist. And it's going to be evident three and a half years into this seven-year covenant that they made a covenant with the wrong person. Well, God, in his mercy, is going to select 144,000 out of the children of Israel. We know that they're Israelites. Now, I know if some of you came from a Jehovah, Jehovah's Witness background, or maybe you've had two people come up to the door and knock on the door and, and uh, you know, open up their, their false translation of the Bible. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they are the 144,000. This was the original belief. And then it became an issue, an issue for them because, you know, when they got to 144,001 Jehovah's Witnesses, it was like, well, how do we explain this? We, got, we have a problem here, right? So let me just tell you that Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses are not the 144,000. They have a Bible, which is not an accurate translation of the Bible. They falsified the translation, and they worship a different Jesus. So when we talk about Jehovah's Witnesses, we're not talking about people who are within Protestant Christianity. We're talking about a cult that is preaching a false message. I just want to make sure you understand that tonight. Um, what, we, what we are talking about when we read about the 144,000, we're going to discuss them more later on in Revelation chapter 14. I think that we just take the Bible for what it says, a literal translation here, or literal interpretation, excuse me, which is we're looking at the children of Israel. Now, some would say, well, there's no record, right? There's no, there's no, uh, there's no lineage that's been carried for 2,000 years so we don't even know who's of the tribe of Levi or the tribe of Judah. How is that even possible? And the answer is simple. Well, we may not know, but God does, right? God, God doesn't need National Geographic to do a genetic test on anybody because God knows the DNA of every single individual. And so it's nothing with God to be able to identify those who are of these particular tribes. And listen, not only that, but how cool is it? I just love this. How cool is it to be living in an era where we've seen the rebirth of the nation? Where we've seen the Jewish people have a homeland again? You know, 80, 100, 200 years ago, if you read this, it'd be like, well, there is no Israel. Right? There's, there are no people dwelling in the land like, how is that even going to work? You can see how those circumstances could have really messed with your eschatology. But we live in a time where we've seen a, a miracle materialize before our very eyes. It is not a huge step now to think about God identifying 144,000 from these particular tribes who are sealed, who are actually in the land who will be serving him, who will be, and we'll see this later on, like little evangelists. So what an amazing time God has allowed us to be a part of. If you read about, you know, these particular tribes, some questions probably will come to mind. Like, you know, why is Joseph mentioned here and Ephraim excluded? So in this list, 
Typically what you have in the, geneal- in the list of the different tribes in the Old Testament, you have uh, Manasseh and Ephraim included and Joseph not included because he is included when his two sons are included. You also have Levi included here. Typically Levi is not included because Levi did not inherit, the tribe did not inherit any land. Uh, And then you'll notice as well that Dan is conspicuously missing. And so it is an interesting uh, list of the tribes, and I think that provokes a lot of different questions. With respect to Dan, some people think, like this is a common belief, that Dan was not included because Dan was responsible for leading the rest of the nation into idolatry. Dan uh, inherited... uh, a territory that was between the Philistines and Jerusalem and then also in the northern part of modern-day Israel, and they were the first tribe to begin to worship false gods. And so, you know, as you read the Old Testament, you recognize that they had a a big responsibility in stumbling the other tribes. Some people believe that Dan's not included because, you know, because of that. And so what do I say about that? I, I say, listen, don't be a stumbling block to a brother or sister. You know, I, I'm not saying tonight that that's, that's going to keep you from being listed in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's not it at all. But Jesus warned us, warned us. He said, it's better if there was a millstone that was tied around your neck than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So listen, what we see, let me just tie this piece up. What we see here is a gracious work of God among the Jewish people. 144,000 Jewish men putting their trust and faith in Jesus Christ who are used evangelistically during the most difficult time on the face of planet Earth. And this ties directly into verse 9 because my view is this, that we see the evidence or the fruit of of the work of God's Spirit through their lives. This second group of people, starting in verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. This is just so amazing, saying, this is the third time this is said, amen, exclamation point, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Yeah, isn't that awesome? So, so yeah, so what's going on here? Like, what is the deal with this? And I know sometimes these you know, these pieces of information, they seem similar, you know, to other things that we've seen in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so it, it, sometimes it might sound redundant, but this is not redundant. In the Great Tribulation period, not only is there going to be a great move of God among Jewish people, there is going to be a great move of God among Gentiles as well. And this is, this is what John is seeing. He's seeing Gentile tribulation saints standing before the throne of God. I mean, we know that that's the case because he says himself, they are from all nations, all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues. And we're not just talking about a couple people. Hey, look, 10 people, you know, got saved during the Great Tribulation. No, that's not what we're saying. It was a multitude that was so great, no one could number it. No one could number it. So look, there's a vastness of God's work during one of the most difficult periods in world history. So drawn from everywhere, I want you just to notice a couple of things here. They're drawn from all nations, all tongues. We talked about this earlier in Revelation chapter 6, just the beauty of God's work among all people, period, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So there's, there's the, the privileged presence of God among them. Clothed with white robes, so not clothed in their own efforts. You know, when the Bible is speaking of robes, particularly in Revelation, we're talking about righteousness. We're talking about our standing before the Lord. White robes would indicate that they've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the only way that we can have right standing before God. They have palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were always symbolic of victory, 
And so the victory, of course, that they're proclaiming and acclaiming is the victory of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And they make this great exclamation. You know, let me just say this again. Heaven is not going to be a quiet place. It's not going to be a somber place. It's not going to be like Sunday night at Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas. I mean, it is going to be loud, out of hand. If you don't like loud, heaven's going to be a problem for you, right? And, and there's not going to be some, like, little place where you can go get your earplugs. You know how that rolls in churches nowadays. It's just, it's just so loud. We've got a little earplug plug place. Don't get me wrong. I know some of us have hearing issues. Well, you're going to have brand new ears. You're going to have brand new hearing. Your hearing's going to be made for heaven. Heaven is not going to be boring. It's going to be high production in the, in the most godly sense when you are in the presence of the Lord. And there is going to be full reason to be able or full reason to express your praise and your proclamation for all that he has done. Salvation, right? Deliverance, the saving power of Christ, getting us from planet earth into heaven instead of planet earth in, into eternal condemnation, that's what salvation is. Salvation isn't just what we've been saved to, it's also what we've been saved from. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, thank God that your destiny is settled in heaven, right? You know that that's where you're headed. Thank God that you're not heading to the alternative, right? Sometimes in this life it's like, well, you know, God, if you would have done something for me lately, I'd have something to praise you for. Well, you're not going to hell, okay? You're not going to hell. I, I know, I know, look, I... I hear you, you've had a hard week. You've had a hard week, okay? You, you know, you're, you got a flat tire, you, you, got, you got bumped, and you didn't get the promotion that you wanted. You know, it's, you've had a hard time financially, but you're a Christian and you're not going to hell. So you got something to praise, praise God for tonight, right? You got something to say, thank you. Salvation belongs, salvation belongs to you. So they're worshiping with great praise. While this scene is happening, all of this happening out of the great tribulation, seals being broken, wrath of God being poured out, people over the course of seven years, Jew and Gentile alike, being saved. This is what the angels do. This is what the elders do. This is what the four living creatures do. They fall on their faces like they have before, and they worship. They proskuneo. Remember proskuneo? Remember we talked about that word? Do you remember what it means? It means an expression of adoration and reverence. Remember that? An expression, an expression of adoration and reverence. Like when you would be standing before the king, the king would stretch his hand out to you. You would take the, the hand of the king. You would kiss the signet. You'd kiss the ring. And it was an expression of adoration and reverence. A king that you loved and a king that you honored. And that's what this word for worship means. It means that we're going to be expressing our love for him, our adoration. This is why we call devotions devotions. You know, when you get up in the morning and you have your devotional time, it's not just checking the box. It's not just doing the duty, right? It's not just, it's not just exercising or accomplishing some discipline that you have to do. No, it's devotion. You're devoted to him. You love him. Before you talk to anybody else in the morning, you want to talk to God because there's no one better to talk to right? Before you interface, before you're dealing with circumstances, before you start getting rubbed the wrong way, before you're interfacing with people that are just difficult and, you know, pr provoke your flesh, you go to the one who's going to fill you to overflowing with this Holy Spirit, who's going to soften your heart and give you the compassion that you need to express the love that he has for every person that you're going to be interfacing with all day long. Before you hear somebody say a word, even the people that you love the most, you are leaning your ear into the voice of your heavenly father so he can whisper how deeply he loves you and how perfect his plan is for you over the course of the next 24 hours. That's what devotion is in the morning. It's spending time with him because we adore him. And then in addition to that in heaven, it's reverence, it's honor, it's respect. Look, I, I, just, think, I, just, I just think that... We've, we have sought to make God so relevant that we've reduced him to a human level sometimes. And, you know, sometimes that's a, a reaction to eras of church history where we've made God so untouchable. Like, you know, we've presented God in such a way that there's almost this, this impassable obstacle. There's this chasm that we'll never be able to cross. He's so transcendent. 
that, that he would never condescend to interface with us. And sometimes as a reaction to that, we swing to the other end of the pendulum and we bring him all the way down to our level. He did condescend. He did span the gap. He did contextualize himself through the incarnation so that he would be relevant in a way where we could hold him. This is what John said. Our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, our hands have handled. Oh my gosh, First John chapter 1. So good, the incarnation. But let's not forget that he, he is the almighty, the omnipotent God of heaven and of earth. That he sits on his throne in absolute authority and providence and in sovereignty. He is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a God to play games with. We don't take advantage of his grace thinking, well, you know what? He'll forgive me anyway, so why don't I? No, we don't do that. We don't do that because we love him, and we don't do that because we also reverence him and respect him. When they're worshiping and falling down before him, there's this adoration and there's this respect and I think that it's a response to all that God is doing. Let me just say this when I, when I wrap this up. Do you rejoice in what God does here on planet Earth? Do you rejoice? I mean, when people... <laughs> you know, when people get saved, when people respond to the gospel, let, let's, just take, let's just take our gatherings as an example. When the gospel is preached and people come forward, what's on your mind? Yeah, I hope so. That's, that, that's, that's what I, because sometimes you know what, the response is so tepid. And as I look out, I'm like, hey, you know what you're thinking about? You're thinking about lunch right now. You're thinking about the football game that you're missing right now. You're thinking about how far over Pastor has gone in his allotted time again, and, and you know, you just wish he would really wrap this message up, because you know, you can look back at the clock that's on the wall, and don't act like I, that, I don't see you when you do that. I see you peeking, you know, you're like, is it green still, or is it red? It's always going to be red, all right? Let me just settle that for you right now. It is always going to be red with me. I'll always be in the red. I can't help it. I try, okay? I do try. But I'm just saying this, man. Don't ever lose the fire. Don't ever lose the joy when people respond to the gospel. You know, take the moment. Set time aside to give God praise. The angels, the elders, the four living creatures, this is precisely what they're doing. They're like, God, you are, you are amazing. You are amazing. Salvation does truly belong to you. And even in the midst of all this chaos and nonsense, you're still working, God, you're at work. In, in a time where it would, be, it would seem to be the least likely moment for hearts to be saved, what are you doing? You're saving hearts. And God, we thank you for every soul. Jesus said it. He's like, look, what happens when, when one sheep leaves? The, the shepherd goes out. When one sheep is lost, the shepherd goes, leaves the 99 and goes after the lost one. And when that lost one is recovered, what happens? All the angels in heaven, they rejoice. There is rejoicing, church, and if we're not going to rejoice, I'll tell you what, the angels in heaven will rejoice. I just say, we should all be rejoicing. That's right. That's right. So we have, we have Jews, we have Gentiles, tribulation saints is what they are. The Bible says in verse 13, as we tie this all together, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, <laughs> just you got to love them. He's like, uh, like, why are you asking me? You know the answer to that. But I think, look, I think he is trying to get John to think. You know, you know I love how Jesus oftentimes when he's asked a question, responds with a question. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, he, do, he does that when people are trying to trip him up. But he also does that because he's trying to get people, he's trying to provoke them to really think things through. Don't get mad at me if I ask you a question, if you ask me a question. And I, and I said to him, sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor heal them, uh, nor, nor any heat, excuse me. So let me just pause there for a second. This particular elder says, listen, let me explain who all of these are. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Those who've been saved during the outpouring of God's wrath. Who chose to put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They have this privileged position before the throne of God. They have this privileged opportunity in that they serve the Lord day and night. Let me just, let me just pause here and say it is such a privilege to be able to serve God. Isn't it? Isn't it a miracle to be able to serve God? It is a miracle. Let me rephrase this as a statement instead of a question. It is a miracle to serve God. Like the, the fact, the fact that you and I can do anything that would please God is a miracle, right? I mean, who are we? Who are we to, to be able to do anything for him in a way that pleases him? I mean, we were so lost. Everything we did was displeasing. But something happened. We put our trust and faith in Christ and our service to God has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, which is what makes it acceptable to him, right? It's not your proficiency. It's not your personal power. It's not your personality. It's not your influence. It's not your abilities that make it pleasing to God. It's been sprinkled with the blood of the lamb. It's been sanctified. It's been consecrated. And now what does God see? God sees your offering through the lens of the sacrifice of his son, and it pleases the heart of the father, Sometimes you know serving can become a burden if our heart's not right. Sometimes it's like, really, do I have to do that again? You know, I mean, this church, all they do is, I'm not, I'm not a volunteer, I'm voluntold. <laughs> no one's asking, they're telling, you know, and here, here I've got to sacrifice my time, you know, one more time. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If, if that's the way that you, you think about it, stop it. Stop it, I'm, I, because you know that attitude, like everything right now has become displeasing to him, <laughs> you know? I mean, we don't want to be offering to God something like that. We offered the world our best. Why can't we offer God our best? We ran to sin with, with joy and excitement. Why can't we run to God in service with joy and excitement? And why can't we look at it like, God, thank you so much. I can't wait. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to use the spiritual gift that you've given me. I can't wait to send it forward and lay it up in heaven. God, this is not a burden. This is not an obligation. It's not because I'm being told to. This is not manipulation. It is a privilege. It is a privilege. It's a privilege to serve him. It's a privilege to serve him. You say, well, you know what, pastor? I'm tired and I... And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little worn down and I have a lot going on. And, and, you know, this is a hard time of year for me. And I say, I know all of that. And while you serve him in the midst of all of that with joy, makes your offering to him even that much more special. That much more special. Look, it's, it's in the difficult times when we serve that I think it really pleases the heart of the Father. So they're before him serving day and night and... Hold on, let me see where I'm at. Verse 15. And they're protected. Obviously, they're preserved from privation, and they're, they're preserved from hunger. Like, they suffered greatly when they were on earth. They refused to take the mark of the beast. They were mercilessly uh, persecuted and martyred. And now God knows how to bless those who, who have suffered for his name he protects them. Verse 17, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the Lord is going to do? And Father, we thank you. God, we thank you tonight. We thank you that you manifest your loving kindnesses and tender mercies all the time. Every single day, God, without exception. Truly, Lord, the issue is whether or not we have eyes to see. Whether or not our hearts are really tender towards you. And God, thank you for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit during this difficult time that's coming. God, we want to send the gratitude ahead before it even happens. Father, thank you for the souls that will be saved. Thank you for the expression of your mercy and grace, even at the same time 
as the expression of your wrath and your justice. Thank you, Father, that your heart towards all people is that all should come to repentance. Thank you, God, that you have supplied the power for our sins to be forgiven through the blood of your Son. Thank you that it's not our righteousness. Thank you that salvation belongs to you. And thank you that Jesus paid the price for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, you know, maybe this evening, you find yourself in a place where, you know, you've been seeking, you've been thinking about God. You've seen people who call themselves Christians. Maybe some of them are even friends that you have. And, and you know your heart's beginning to soften. You might have been thinking recently that maybe it's time for you to get things right with the Lord. Maybe it's time for you to give your life over to Him. You know, if you've been thinking in that manner, I just would say to you tonight, that's because God has been ministering to you through the power of His Holy Spirit. We don't, on our own, just come to those conclusions. It's evidence. It's evidence that God is with you. It's evidence that God is moving in your life and placing people in your life to be a witness to Him. It's evidence that, that God is drawing you to himself because he loves you. I mean, he loves you. The Bible says that for God so loved the world, and that is absolutely true in the greatest general sense, but I want to say to you tonight that he loves you. He knows your name. He knows every situation and circumstance. He knows what this week has been like for you. He knows the loss that you've suffered he knows the agony that you've been dealing with. He knows the darkness that's clouded your perspective. He knows the battle in your mind. He knows the struggle in your heart. He's familiar with your disappointments. And tonight he's calling you to himself. He's calling you to come. He is the only one who will ever be able to satisfy your soul. He is the only one who will ever be able to meet your need. God is the lover of your soul. You've been made and shaped by him. You've been made and shaped for him. And you'll never be complete. You'll never be satisfied. You'll always be empty. You'll always bear the burden of guilt and shame until you lay your life down and trust him in the sacrifice that his son made on the cross for you tonight will you take a step of faith and believe in Jesus personally I'm not talking about belief as in he's just a historical figure I'm talking about belief in a way where you receive him as your Lord as the savior of your soul, as the one who died for your sins, as the one who was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father to pave the way for you so that you can be confident in this life, that you will inherit everlasting life and not everlasting condemnation. Tonight the choice is yours, but God is calling you to believe. And so this evening, as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, if you tonight want to take that step of faith and trust in Christ once and for all to believe in the sacrifice that he made for you, to receive the forgiveness of your sins, to have the, the hole in your heart filled with the love of God, tonight I want to pray for you right where you're sitting. And I'm just going to simply ask you, would you raise your hand if this is you? You came in and you're not a Christian. Tonight you want to leave as a believer in Christ. I see your hand over here on my right. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Tonight, if you're a Christian and and look, I just want to be, I just want to play it straight with you. Uh, you've been playing games with God. 
You've been playing games with God. You know, with your mouth, you acknowledge Christianity and, and you call yourself a Christian and God knows your heart. There's no doubt about it, but, but you've been playing games. What's happening on the inside or maybe behind closed doors or when you're not present on, around other Christians is completely different than the proclamation of faith that you make. And God loves you. God doesn't want you dwelling in that place. He's not a God to be trifled with. And you can pull it over on people around you, but you can't pull it over on God. And just in light of what we've talked about this evening, it's appropriate tonight to, to just extend an opportunity for you to say to God, not to anybody else, but to Him, God, I'm not playing games with you anymore. I'm not just going to talk about you out of one side of my mouth and then live a completely different life out of the other side of my mouth. God, I'm not going to have two lives. I'm not going to be the hypocrite. Tonight, I want to follow you. I want to trust in you. I want to give you my life. And so this evening, if this is you, as a Christian, and you just need to get it straight with the Lord, would you raise your hand? God bless you. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand as well. Thank you. Okay, you can put your hands down. And Father, thank you so much for just your mercies and your grace and the work of your spirit in these precious lives. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I want to lead you right where you're sitting in a simple prayer. All right, this is your prayer to God. I'm going to guide you in some of the words, but it's your heart to the Lord. And it's your confession of faith in Christ. It's you acknowledging to God that you're turning away from, from sin that has kept you from him. It's you tonight saying to him that you're going to follow the way of Jesus. And so tonight, I just want to lead you in this very simple prayer. I want to encourage you to follow me right where you're sitting. You can pray this out loud if you want to. God, tonight... I do give you my life and I repent of my sin. I'm turning away from that sinful lifestyle. I'm turning away from my unbelief and I'm believing in Jesus, your son, believing that he died for me and that he rose again, choosing tonight to follow him and to live his way. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen.